0: Hey, everybody. Welcome to the Art Fight Podcast. Uh, we've got a, a, a guest on the phone today with us, so uh, we're, we're doing some new technical things here. Um, uh, I'm glad everybody's here uh, you know, to listen to the show. We've got a great guest here today. Um, he is the man behind the Cult Epics uh, film distribution and uh, book uh, uh, publisher, and um, uh, he's a, a legendary underground film impresario who's a director in his own right, and he's got a brand-new project out right now that we're going to talk about uh, welcome, uh, Nico B, to the Art Fight Podcast. How you doing, Nico?
1: Hey, I'm good. Nice to talk to you
0: guys. Nice to talk to you too. I'm glad we were able to connect with you today. And um, uh, like I said, you're you're out in uh, uh, California now. Is that right? In Los Angeles? Yeah, I'm in the Los Angeles area. Yeah, we just uh, talked to another uh, uh, Los Angelino, so this is this is becoming a habit for us doing these uh, uh, connecting the South to the West Coast here in the middle of the pandemic. Yeah, here's what the entertainment is, they say. <laughs> That's what they tell me, too. <laughs> anyway, so uh, first off, I think uh, I think it might be fun to get into uh, your latest project. This is how we got connected. I got a press release from you guys talking about your latest project, which is called... Um, hold on a second. Let me see the name of it here. I want to make sure I get it right. Bunny, uh, Women of the Sun, Bunny Yeager in Mexico. Um, And it's a beautiful book of pinup photography. Uh, Why don't you give us a little bit of background about the book and tell us who Bunny Yeager was?
1: Yeah, so basically, Bunny Yeager is mostly known by the cheetah and beats photos he took of Betty Page, who you're probably Mm -hmm. familiar with, in the 1950s. And I knew Bunny since the late 90s. I was a film student and I. She a documentary called 100 Girls by Bunny Yeager. I was a big fan of her pinup photography. I also knew Betty Page at the same time. I used to write with her, et cetera, from Europe, when I lived in Europe at the time and was releasing all these Betty Page films on VHS in the day. And later on, you know, a couple of years ago, I contacted Bunny again and we were shooting with a pin-up called Claire Sinclair. There's a lot of sim- similarity with Betty Page. Mm-hmm. and uh I was working on a TV show with her, and she wanted to basically she wanted to shoot with Bunny Yeager. and I said, "Well, how about for the show you interview her and uh, and afterwards, we do a shoot, which all happened and
2: uh' oh, I see. legendary
1: because it was also the last shoot of uh, Bunny Yeager. two weeks later she passed away. Uh, This was released, actually it's being released in a week or so on Blu-ray, the Claire Mm -hmm. Sinclair show, uh, which includes that interview and the shoot uh, with Bunny Yeager, very beautiful uh, photographs. And at the time I talked to Bunny when I was meeting her and I said, uh, did you know that I'm a book publisher now? I said, no, really? And she said, uh, I have a book I want you to do and it's called Bunny Yeager in Mexico. And I uh, said, okay, what's that? I never heard of it. And she said, mm-hmm. oh, I took all these photos in the sixties, kind of after the whole Billy Page thing. She discovered a model called Christine Starr, and she was the only exclusive model of hers. And she went to Mexico and shot all these uh, pictures of her in front of the temples of Chichen Itza, etc. And when I saw them the first time. Uh, after she passed away actually because her daughter passed these photos to me and i was amazed and uh, we made an agreement in a contract and deal and um, basically now the fruits 2 years later uh, are in the book and uh, the book is uh, available you know in bookstores uh at, at least online i don't know how many bookstores are open or whatever but uh, yeah, can it point. Is on amazon etc yeah
0: yeah well it's a good time I mean honestly it's a good time to be releasing books and movies I think that that's uh that's you know uh we talked to lots of people who are uh you know actually we talked to lots of artists and martial artists and a lot of those people in general have really you know people who are trying to have exhibitions you know in public galleries or people who are trying to have martial arts tournaments or people who are you know trying to play live shows with their bands or whatever so much of our of our uh you know arts and entertainment culture has been shut down but, but but uh, you know, films and books and stuff, you know, it's it's the perfect time. People are sitting at home with, you know time to read, you know, time to watch a film. So in a weird way, I think it's actually a really good time. And I also think that this book in particular, with these beautiful outdoor shots, you know, very mystical, psychedelic, you know, photographs of these models, you know, on these, you know, beautiful architectural structures and in these beautiful settings in Mexico, it's, it's uh, you know, it's, it's soothing to uh, to our souls as we're trapped indoors mostly nowadays.
1: Yeah. Well, that's true. It was weird, because I had an exhibit planned in Los Angeles, and Mm -hmm. that was actually opened up two weeks ago, and it was very strange. We had to do, uh, first of all, online exhibits, so the pictures are online at uh, La Luce de Jesus Gallery in Los Angeles, and they basically created an online video to visit the gallery, and it's, uh, it's extremely abstract, uh, however, they were able, with LA slowly opening up, they were able to make appointments on the weekends, uh, so they have these time slots that people can make an appointment to two people at the same time, and it's been packed. I mean, it's, Friday, it's Saturday and Sunday, as it's right now, and it's every weekend is booked. Oh, wow. uh, so hopefully, Great. in the last week, we will be doing a show where some more people can come in, but we're not sure, because the regulations are even tighter again in LA because of the, I think, of the uh, demonstrations and people not wearing masks, et cetera. Et cetera. Uh, among young people. There's a lot of cases right now, more than ever, in LA, in California. Uh, so anyway, it's a new way of seeing an art show, I guess, uh, which is disappointing because I wanted to have a celebration, a party. You know, with all the people, there were some celebrities who are now 70, 80 years old who are going to come, you know. Oh, that's amazing. And now, but now they're not coming. So hopefully we'll redo it in Miami uh, next year uh, when things are cleared again. Yeah,
3: hopefully, hopefully, right? Um, I think it's really interesting too how it's it's hard for us personally, I think, all to negotiate. losing exhibits or, or being able to follow through with big plans and projects on one hand, certainly it feels really bad and it's frustrating and you feel like you're missing out on a time. And at the same time, there's always, you know, there's people that are, you know, really deeply more, you know, mortally suffering right now. So it's a strange place to be sort of, uh, uh in between those kind of realities, uh, and still, you know, you want to keep going. And, and speaking of that, you know, I wanted to address the uh the the fo- you you mentioned you know uh, Bunny's daughter and she, and there's a great forward in the in the uh in the edition that that I see that is you know written by by her and it it speaks of of Bunny being sort of a a non-stop sort of uh force you know maybe you can tell us a little bit more about uh your relationship uh with with Bunny's daughter and and then and and also uh how that relates to Bunny
1: yeah well, you know, I used to visit Bernie in Miami. We did quite a few projects together. She also worked on my movie, Betty Page's Dark Angel, uh, the opening shot, uh, shot uh, with uh, being in Miami. And uh, I met her daughter many times. Her daughter, by the hand, is deaf and dumb, meaning she can't talk, mm-hmm. um, and uh, everything is by sign language. So it was extremely difficult to do forward, because we had to do it by the phone, mm. because I wasn't there. And we had an interpreter, and there was there was a very interesting way of doing forward <laughs> But wow. uh, anyway, she's been extremely cooperative, and um, you know, I, I've met her many times, and I worked with Bunny, uh, t- you know, about ten times in my life.
0: That's awesome. I mean, I, I uh, wh- what about like Bunny's work ethic? Like Brian mentioned, and I, I read that forward as well. Oh, yeah. And it's she seemed to you know to be just like one of these artists who is non-stop. just like constantly yeah, on the go, right?
1: Right, because I knew her. Uh, you know, in the day when I was doing art exhibits in uh, Holland, actually, and Paris, etc., of the Betty Page photos, and rediscovered uh, all these photos when I was young. And this is a long time ago, i talking about 90s, I guess, 80s, right. 90s. And I was doing, so, you know, I was always corresponding with her and buying photos from her. She would make prints, et cetera. And she was constantly looking for outlets, you know, where to promote her photography, which was unique and one of a kind. I mean, it's it's in museums, et cetera. I mean, she has a, has a huge following because of pinups. What, on the other hand, there's uh, art collectors as well, uh, who are really into her work. I mean, it's it eliminates uh, in a different way than just seeing a girl naked.
0: Mm-hmm. It's,
1: uh, it's art photography.
0: I think um, one of the things that uh, made me interested in, in having this interview with you, uh, like we talked about before we got on the air, was that um, uh, a lot of people don't know this, but uh, uh, Betty Page was originally from Nashville, so she connects to our audience that's here locally. Uh, because you know, we all think of Betty Page as like uh, you know, uh, you know, a local girl who you know became uh, became famous. Um, and like you mentioned when you were uh, when we when we first got on the phone, uh, Bunny, you know, took some of the most iconic images of Betty, the one with Betty kneeling down between two cheetahs, and didn't Bunny also? take... Take the one with where Betty has the Santa hat on and she's putting an ornament on a tree.
1: Yeah, yeah, exactly. For playboy, that was a playmate uh, cover in the 1950s, 54, I believe.
0: Yeah. See, and like you said too, like you, you know, you're talking about like getting, you know, uh, sort of discovering Betty Page in like the early '90s or late '80s or whatever. She really sort of had this revival where she kind of became, um, you know, uh, an, an, uh, you know, kind of an underground icon all over again. Um, What, what, what is it? You know, I mean, I know we're going to get into more about your uh, about all the films that you've distributed and the films that you've made and things. um, But, but in a way, Betty is like the sort of the uh, sort of persona kind of embodiment of this same phenomenon what is it about these people or these works of art these films these photographs and things you know, that makes them these these things that never necessarily become uh, acclaimed in terms of the popular mainstream. But they are these things that just, you know, uh, in, are constantly rediscovered by new generations of people who become obsessed with them and, and and find them to be far more interesting than, you know, the things that you find, you know, uh, uh, on in the mainstream.
1: Yeah. Well, the answer did became mainstream when the Hollywood movie was made three years after my movie. Mm-hmm. But uh, I must say, you know, obviously it's her looks. I mean, it's the bangs, it's the black hair, the darkness. It shows, you know, mm-hmm. the beauty, her curves. I mean, you know, people think we want, at that time, people... Promoting the perfect slim girl in in the 70s and 80s, I think, and uh-huh. and that really to me and many people that didn't appeal. Uh, we just wanted the real woman or something <laughs> mysterious uh, with a mystery, etc. And you know, I was a punk rocker and you know into gut music or whatever, you know. And I was I was completely you know flabbergasted when I saw these pictures from the 50s. It was like an icon to me at that time. It was mm-hmm. like unusual. And I never seen anything like it. And so um, until you see an image of her, either a lover a hater, I you either love her or hate her, I guess. You gotta go for it or you don't go for it. But still, it's it's unique. She had a unique style, and I think that's what appeals to people to this day. You know, she was kind of like kind of from the underground because obviously it was a, a daring as a, you know, time in the fifties to do this stuff, to do bondage in the fifties. I mean. Mm. That was not openly discussed. It was sold at the counter, and now it's, uh, you know, fatted bombers, who cares, right, in, right. Uh, in many movies, et cetera. But there there it was, and it was already in the 50s and before that, but she was the icon of that whole period. Yeah.
3: I think it's interesting, too, how it's like, you know, um, you know, I grew up in the 80s and 90s, I suppose, uh, and, you know, see, seeing, given this kind of work, you know and knowing about this uh you know even just the sort of the pinup realm it seemed like such a distant sort of nostalgia even at that time but as you get older as you know it's like that really wasn't that long ago and it, but you think about how it went from something that i think in the broader culture is kind of perhaps sort of fetishized as as sort of nostalgia without necessarily a lot of substance but then as you mentioned there is a huge fine art quotient to this and there's also uh, I think a deeper over time un- uh more appreciation and, and understanding for for this entire sort of world really, and I think about how hard it must have been to shoot you know a lot of this work you know to to be at Chichen itza at that time, you know uh, even in the forward again you know talks about running around uh you know trying to snap you know f- these great uh photos but at the same time avoiding soldiers and having to cover up and sort of duck for cover and, you know, sort of this clandestine sort of operation and they were doing all that, you know, obviously before technology and a lot of things that would be perhaps helpful uh, and and maybe that was seen as way more uh, perhaps heretical at that time. So uh, I'm just curious, yeah. yeah, so I'm just curious about your thoughts on that.
1: Well, you yeah, know, definitely was a different time and to me, I was looking at the other day, I was counting the years and I was like, whoa, this is, 60 years ago, Mm. more than 60 years ago. That's a long time, I mean, it's a lifetime of a person, nearly, and Mm. Betty Pace was 70 years ago or more.
3: And so that is
1: a different period, and yeah, now, but now, it was a different time where a kind of sexual revolution was uh, coming up, which happened obviously in the 70s, so Bunny was ahead of her time. And basically, now you can't even walk up to the temple of Chichen Itza, it's not allowed by the government, it's now completely restricted. And can you imagine a woman being nude there in front of these temples That would be completely scandalous. I mean, it's <laughs> extremely strange, but it's true. And so this was a different time, a different area. And uh, I'm glad I was there. And he take, took these photos. And, you know, I had maybe two people out of 1,000 people saying sacralists or something. Well, I didn't take the picture, but she did. And <laughs> But on the other hand, you know, she, she took them because she was just uh, an open-minded uh, person, a woman. Who just understood, uh, you know, the, the, the beauty of women and, and etc. Whatever surroundings she shot it in, you know, didn't really matter. I mean, she shot Betty uh, Betty Page on the beach Newt many times, and in incredible beautiful pictures. But I think if you do these days, you probably get a ticket if you do that, <laughs> unless you have a permit. <laughs> so you know, it was a completely different time. It was before the sexual revolution. It was a free time, I think, in many ways. But maybe not in all ways, you know. And I think that appealed to men and maybe women in the time. Now it appeals to women as well, and you know, she's an icon for many women. Uh, the way you know they paste uh, dressed, uh, even the clothing, you know, yeah. that's why they have all these very pasted. That's why all these rockabilly people are into her. I completely understand it. Mm-hmm. It was a, a big example for for many young people.
0: Yeah, he, and they, I, you go ahead, Nico.
1: No, I,
0: that was it. Um, I was going to say, you know, you, you're making a good point about, uh, about Bunny as well. And I, I wanted to ask you this. I mean, it's my impression. I mean, obviously, you're the expert publishing these books, and you know a lot more than I do. And that's why we have people like you on the show. But it's my impression that, you know, uh, back in the day, back in the 50s and the 60s, that it was obviously lots of men were attracted to being in the business of shooting pinup models, you know. Um, but, uh, but Bunny was kind of a pioneer as a female in that field, was she not?
1: Yeah, exactly. I mean, uh, you know, now there's Diane Arbus Air- and different photographers who basically, you know, applaud her for what she did. Um, but, uh, you know, but on the other hand, Betty Pates, for instance, I talked to her later on and she, she didn't really understand. She understood the pinafos. She didn't really understand the of disorders. She didn't understand what the appeal was. You know, she just got paid 10 times more that's why she did it. <laughs> yeah. But she did, and, and, and she had no you know, reservations about certain things. She was an extremely open-minded person. I remember reading stories about her, you know, how her sex life was, et cetera. She was like free-willing, you could say that. She was married many times, and after that she became obviously a Catholic, and, and many bad things happened to her. But at that time, she was a free woman, and uh, you know, she did what what she wanted to do.
0: And uh, and I think that's what shows. What about uh, what about that? You know, I think that um, you know again one of the things that you know made made this all these different things that we're talking about today interesting to me was the fact that you know uh Betty Page was connected to this that she has this connection to Nashville and I think one of the things that you know uh that you just mentioned about Betty and what makes her so iconic is this mystery we have around her and who she was and 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 what kind of a person was she in real life and and uh you know in some of the photos like some of the photos that that Bunny took you there's a real innocence that comes off of her but at the same time there's also these famous photos that you mentioned which are these bondage photos where where she's all tied up in lingerie and whatnot, and um, uh, so there is this mystery that surrounds her. And um, you know, you're one of the people who's tried to uncover some of that mystery by making your film. Tell us a little bit about the movie that you made about Betty Page.
1: Yeah, well, basically, I I, I knew a lot about Betty Page. I mean, I they had every photograph of Bunny Yeager and Irving Claw at the time. I know what was you know what was going on. A lot of people do not know this that Bunny Yeager even took some of the Bandit's photos for Irving Claw when he visited really? Miami. I, rec- I recently discovered that she was the one who's clicking the camera.
0: You heard it here first, and, people. And,
1: and, <laughs> and, Ir- and Irving uh, was there. I mean, um, the agent uh, was going to send me some pictures of that. And I never see. I, I probably seen them, but probably nobody know that she took them.
2: Right, know. of course. So he
1: was completely, you know, open-minded. She would, see would, you know, it, it didn't matter. You know, the only thing he never wanted to go into the exploitation and adult market, which I must say I applaud her for, because that would set the stuff completely apart. And uh, and that's where it is. Where it is now. What was the question again?
0: I um, basically wanted you to tell us a little bit about the movie that you made, which is called Betty Page Dark oh, Angel. Yeah. Is that correct? Right, right. Yeah. And uh, right. um, well, but, and go ahead.
1: Yeah. yeah well, basically, it, it's I never want, as I said, I never wanted to make a film. I wasn't. I had no ambition. I knew everything about Betty Page. But, I had no ambition making a film. I was Actually, I'm more like an underground filmmaker. Mm-hmm. I'm more like an artist. I, unless I feel inspiration, I make it, I don't do it for money. Mm-hmm. So anyway, there was a time, uh, I, I just made a film called Pig with Ross Williams of Christian Dad, which is a called underground film. It has a big audience to this day. It's a short film, but people love this film for some reason and obviously because of Ross and um after i made that film this uh i was at a photographer's studio a friend of mine and she showed me these these pictures of a girl and uh was a photographer and i was looking at it and i was like whoa who's this girl and she didn't look at Betty Page at all she had no bangs etc but she was a gorgeous girl and i was like i really want to work with this person i don't know why it's something's going to happen this always happens to me before I meet somebody, it's something happens, and then I meet them by accident. Mm. And so I didn't say anything to her. But later on, I said, who's that? And she said, oh, that's uh, Paige Richards. And I said, oh, really? Well, I never heard of her. And uh, she said, uh, she wants to meet you. Um, she loves your film, Pig. And I'm like, really? I didn't think <laughs> she would have seen that. And I said, yeah, I've seen her husband, love it, love the film, and uh, she wants to work with you. And so I met her. And we met him, uh, and she was. And so I talked to her on the phone, I think. And she said, Oh, yeah, I love your company. You released all these Betty Page original films on, on the DVD, etc. And I said, Oh, you've seen some of them. Okay, cool. And then I met her, and she was all dressed up like Betty Page. She had the banks and everything. I was like, Whoa, wow. what's going on here? And she said, I really want to do a Betty Page project with you and I was like, Okay, well I don't really <laughs> But I said this this is really strange. It feels like I'm meeting Betty Page. even had a fifties dress on. I remember it was at Cafe Figaro in in Los Angeles. And uh, I said, This is extremely strange and I uh, and I and I said, Well, you, you definitely uh, have the looks but uh, let's talk about it. And so slowly I found out that her uh, photography was a lot of fetish photography and, and videos, I guess. or well, maybe not videos. She wanted me to do the video of her as Betty Pates. And I said, well, you know what? It's, what's interesting to me is I've been trying to find these bonded cells for years. Most of them were destroyed. I did one video. Uh, I licensed from uh, Paula Claw at the time and I titled it Betty Page's Bondage Queen mm. and it was pretty successful and um I was like okay but where are the other films? I asked. Uh, I asked Paul. It's, he said, "Oh, they're all destroyed because we got in trouble with a law of the time. With some kind of senator who went after people mm-hmm. in the fifties or sixties. Uh, the fever, I think his name was." And uh, I said, "Oh, really? That's that's sad." But I have all these. I had all these photos of her as Jungle Girl, as she's tying somebody to a tree, or she's being tied <laughs> to a tree. And I was like, "Okay, this is really cool stuff." And so what I decided is to recreate these, these, these films, these four-minute shorts, that's how they were, how uh, long they were, there were these loops, they shot on 16 and, and Super 8, whatever, and and I was like, well, I want to recreate them on 16, and back and white, exactly how they did it then with this girl. And so from the photograph, yeah. sometimes only had one it was called Pony Girl, where she was like tied up like a pony pony girl. <laughs> and from that one photo, we me, my girlfriend, we would create the whole scene because she knew a lot about uh Bondits. And I said and so we created this whole scene from just one photo and that's how we did it. We made six shorts and then I was thinking, well, you know, I would release this uh Kate Richards as Betty Page in Bondits or something like Dieter von Tees does, you know, she does these videos, sure. uh, etc. at the time. Uh, except I would shoot only on film. I don't like uh, video too much. And so at the time, but then I thought, well, how about I tell the story, What, why these films and why these photographs are so discriminating to people, and why she left uh, the audience, you know, why she became seclusive and and didn't want anything to do it anymore, because nobody knew at that time what happened to her. Right. Um, you know, in the in the eighties, I didn't even know where she, if she was still alive or not. Nobody knew until the a, late eighties. There was an article appeared and she seemed to be alive. And um, so anyway, that story fascinated me. And then I shot that on mini DV at the time. That was the DHD format. There was no HD yet. Yeah, yeah, uh, right yeah. before HD, uh, people used for video. And uh, and I integrated the films, the shorts with the storyline, and uh, that's what I did. Completely a kind of Ed Wood style kind of movie, completely, you have to really sit down to watch it. And uh, But I figured it was very accurate of, of what's going on, so it has a love and hate audience, because people are expecting a Hollywood movie, which it is not.
2: <laughs> but it is
1: a description of the, fil- the film she did in the day, and what happened to her. And uh, I was very happy with it. It was actually the most successful release of cult epics ever, uh, because that w- it was reissued when the and Mall Betty Page film came out, and my distributor was Riko under Warner Brothers, and uh, and did extremely well on DVD at that time.
3: Killer. So it's um yeah, it's a, it's quite a responsibility to take on the, the sort of recreation of these, these lost tapes
1: yeah maybe but but to me it was came all natural yeah. in that sense
3: yeah. yeah i always i mean it was an
1: extremely slow but low budget it was a i think we did the whole thing we shot in we shot the film in three days in la in the studio in uh but we also recreated how would you seen it was another thing why she disappeared from the scene uh we we recreated the miami period and the movie star period In three cities, shot in 10 days, including flying. And everything went very smooth, actually. And um, it was made for $50,000, I believe. Wow. And, uh, you know, it's completely low-budget filmmaking.
3: So what you're saying is it's it's the only film in history that happened on time, within budget, with no problems.
1: (laughs) Well, it was extremely crazy. (laughs) I mean, it went like this. It read like this: Next uh, tomorrow, next week, we're flying to uh, Miami. I need a diner which is open in the middle of the night. <laughs> and we this thing. I call this diner, this 50s diner, and and I tell you, the, the guy says, Oh, I love Betty Page. Then he says, Oh, uh, we're closed on this day. You want to shoot? But that's perfect because normally we're open. 365 days a year
2: <laughs> <laughs>
1: and that day when we arrived it was closed because there was some thing going on in Miami wow. and, we were, and the guy said, left us the key and said okay you can you can shoot as long as you want we love your your project and you know same thing and it was completely guerrilla film style making we smuggled the, the lights through the hotel lobby we were staying on the beach to shoot the last scene of the movie only uh, with her walking on the beach, walking to the chapel, which we shot in in Hollywood, and yeah, you know, it was completely underground filmmaking. You just did it as it came, and everything went smooth for some reason. It's amazing. It just happened.
3: It's amazing when you're not worried about permits or doing anything legally or correctly. How fast and efficiently you can get everything done.
1: <laughs> exactly. That's that's what I believe in. But it's
3: that's your you know rock it's rock harder popcorn.
1: these days than ever in America. It's uh-huh. harder and harder to do that. Yeah. Uh yeah. you know, but that's that's I love that. I mean yeah. when things just happen and everything goes.
3: That is your point you spirit.
0: Uh yeah. you mentioned that you prefer to film uh with sixteen millimeter versus on video. Like what 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 is your you know, tell us a little bit. I mean we talk about that kind of thing a lot, you know, analog versus digital or you know, yeah. different kinds of tools that we prefer over others. What what about you? Why why do you uh why would you rather work with film?
1: Well, it's a it's a better moving image. The people always look better on film, but mm-hmm. I love Super 8, for instance. For some reason, I do a lot of underground films. On Super 8, it's also very easy to shoot guerrilla style on Super 8 because nobody see you coming, mm-hmm. uh, and, and you don't need lights a lot of the time, unless well, you do on di- indoors. And, and so you can just shoot. And I, I like that whole whole et- ethic. And then 16, I love, is a little bit more, you know, you're a camera guy mostly. I mean, I shoot all of it myself, too. I, I sh- I'm i the camera guy. Behind right. all my movies, I shot them. Nobody knows this. But because <laughs> I have I how I want it, and I shoot it, and that's it. And I only take... Maybe one to three takes, and that's it, then I'm done, I have it. You know. So I, it's funny, I hired, ex, you know, very established cinematographers, and, and they look at me and they said, well, you know exactly how you want it. Maybe you shoot it, and i just do the lights for you. <laughs> it always ends up like that. It's the strangest thing, and I didn't plan it. But um, I love those formats, video. I mean, it looks more flat. I mean, I, it worked for the Betty Page thing because I wanted to be kind of campy. Mm-hmm. And so to shoot the the color scenes, the, her storyline, you know, kind of like an advert movie to me, right. uh, makes it a little campy and, you know, two dimensional in a way. And I, I like that. It becomes like a comic book or something. And uh, I,
0: li- I like that whole effect. Yeah, yeah that's cool, man. And I, I appreciate what you're saying there, because that's something that I find a lot is like, you know, artists who, you know, I always appreciate it when an artist is really thinking through like, their tools their medium their process in terms of like what is the subject like You know, it's not like, oh, I'm changing my subject and now I'm just going to do the same thing I did last time. It's like, no, if it's a different subject, maybe you should maybe should approach it differently with a different technique that makes that that enhances and uh, and helps you investigate and interrogate the subject that you've that you're now doing. You know, so I like the idea that you're saying, hey, the switch in the format there isn't something you would normally do, but it made sense because it accentuated what you're trying to do with that subject.
1: Yeah, I mean, I think the format comes after your subject.
0: Yeah. So I love when it. you know your
1: subject, then you kind of it comes altogether. Where you're going film on?
0: Yeah, I mean, I think that's. Great. I mean, then
1: sometimes it's a choice of budget, etc., and then sure, sometimes <laughs> the wrong is the wrong choice because of that. Right. But um, I mean, again, I'm an underground, low budget filmmaker uh and um, you know i don't have any obligations to producers because i'm the producer
0: mhm yeah, that's fantastic, man. Well, speaking of which, um, you know, uh, you know, speaking of how you're the man behind your movies and also the man behind the camera. Um, let's talk for a second about uh, about your background as a film distributor and somebody who's who's really, you know, not only do you celebrate underground films and underground subjects in these books that you're releasing, but you you're like you've literally like, you know, uh, made sure those things have been available to the world. Can we start talking a little bit about uh, the store that you opened in the the Netherlands uh, back in the early '90s, and then kind of get up to speed with what's going on with cult epics nowadays.
1: Yeah, so so basically, I was actually in film school, and <laughs> that's mm-hmm. how I met Bunny. But uh, that's how I met Bunny to do the the pinup documentary, and mm-hmm. I just approached her. And uh what my teacher said, well, and she was like, you know, her, her best friends were like uh, Abel Ferrara and Bob Dylan and Andy Warhol, and she lived in Amsterdam, mm-hmm. and she was this cool director by Bedford mm-hmm. and she's still a close friend to me today. She gave me a lot of advice in life. Great. Uh, she's a Buddhist now. She basically, mostly makes Buddhist films. She used to do punk rock films. She shot the sex <laughs>
2: pistols that,
1: that you could think of, Cabaret Voltaire, uh, you know, she was... And she she hired me because of my personality and not uh, because I was such a great filmmaker, but she knew, you know, what I wanted to do Um, is a true thing to art. And so she hired me. I had to drive every day to Den Haag, which is uh, 50 miles from Amsterdam, but she would pick me up to go to school. She was my teacher, so it's extremely funny. Uh-huh. And, um, and so from there on, uh, she said at one point to me, well, you can keep going to school, but maybe it's better you just make, make money and then because nobody's gonna finance the films you wanna make, she said. She was very honest. And so what, how about you make money first and then you can make your films whatever you want? And I said, okay, great, then I'll do that. <laughs> <laughs> I had no idea what it meant. Well, it meant, she said, just do something you love. And I I love music. I was actually a music distributor at that time. I was distributing, uh, you know, Death in June in the Banalux and Europe where I lived and other bands. Uh, you know, I was re- representative of some labels from France, etc. I was representing some bands like Von Magnet and Gallon Drunk and all kinds of, you know, rock and roll stuff. And um, And basically... You know, I started a music magazine, I remember, and then I came to a D um nobody's buying CDs anymore. At one point, it happened. Really, it was really strange. And <laughs> uh, and vinyl was already going out. And so I thought, okay, my other, my biggest love is film. <laughs> right. And I used to collect videotapes uh, and uh, and swap with people all around the world. I could see, uh, you know, crazy films. You know, you couldn't find anywhere else, like uh, I don't know, Salo or Cannibal Holocaust or yeah. And so all these movies are later on released, and you couldn't find them legally. Just only swapping with people. So suddenly I came to say, okay, what about? It? And I call all the video distributors, and Seltzer didn't exist yet. And I say, well, how about the Clockwork Orange? I call Warner. I said, how about I buy hundred copies? And I said, okay, well it's only out on rental. It's two hundred dollars. Rental and said, okay, but I'm not buying it for rental. So, can you sell it to me for this? And they said, yes. So, we're selling tapes between 50 and $100. Well, gildings, which was actually half at the time. And basically, from there on, I started a mail order called Cold Video, and, and it was a huge success. Everybody around Europe knew we had the uncut stuff horror movies, um, exploitation movies, but also art house films and, um, you know, rare controversial art house films of Fellini or or whoever you can think of. And from there on, I had a little niche in the bookstore and and the guy was flabbergasted. This is in the late 80s that... I would sell more VHS tapes than uh, than he did on, in books. <laughs> <laughs> and this was like a specialized books store called Cineconada at the time. And I was like, okay, and so I thought, well, and then the guy was trying to, you know, raise my my. Rent or whatever he was charging me, what I, I can't remember <laughs> a tape or something, and I thought, well, I could just open my own store. And then I started the cult video stores in Amsterdam first, Rotterdam, some other cities, because it was such a success. Everybody from all over the uh, Holland were coming to my store to rent or buy tapes, and and then all from everywhere from the UK, Germany, you know, they knew we had the real deal. had anything from Eisenstein to Cannibal Holocaust, so people would go, well. <laughs> this is crazy and uh, <laughs> you know was a cinephile for cinephiles it was the, the paradise and it was basically you know what I liked and the films I liked and I thought they were cool and, and it was not you know it wasn't horror comedy and action no it was uh, this country and this director and every director I would travel all around Europe and find tapes in other stores where they at that time finally started selling VHS and And rent them out, they' the biggest collection, and you know, and then it became extremely famous, because Tarantino was in town writing uh Pulp fiction, mm-hmm. and he was a member in a store, and all the movies he rented was you know all the Italian exportations Japanese stuff uh I went to Hong Kong at the time and met with John Wu and what I wanted to buy uh, bullets in the head, and they wanted to sell me hard boiled and I was like, well, I'm not interested in commercial. <laughs> For me, and so it's like, but I came back with hundreds of tapes of these Hong Kong films. I don't know if you remember that period when Hong Kong was like big, you know, uh, these these Chinese films uh, and you know Chinese ghost story and all these ghost story horror films, etc. And action, you know, all these action films with mm-hmm. Chow Yun Fat. I would find them, and luckily they were the same format in Hong Kong. And at the same time, they were subtitled most of them, unless it was some crazy monster film. But it didn't matter because it was so crazy; it was entertaining. It didn't matter if it had subtitles <laughs> or
2: not. People would go for
1: it, you know. Yeah. Like, and so it was a it was a huge success, I tell you. And then uh, and then people suddenly started asking me, "Well, how about Betty Page?" And I was like, "Okay, uh, I love Betty Page, but there's no films." And then I met Paula Klom, you know, and then she mm-hmm. sold me the rights. And, from there on, I released uh, about 10 VHS and then later on DVD and recently on Blu-ray, uh, I scanned the original Super uh, 816 Super you know, films of uh, Betty Pace. And that was the first release in 91.
0: Yeah, mm-hmm. wow.
1: cult
0: Interesting. Yeah. And so now your company is called Cult Epics and you guys are releasing, still releasing films all the time and also you yeah. know, releasing the new book that we're talking about. And, um, uh, uh, I think it's it's I love that that whole origin story. And I think it's a lot of people don't know that about Tarantino that like the beginning of Pulp Fiction, you know, John Travolta has just gotten back from Amsterdam because yeah, in real life, Quentin Tarantino had written that script in Amsterdam. So while he was writing Pulp Fiction, he was going to your store to get John Woo films. Is that true?
1: Yeah, yeah, everything, everything. <laughs> every, every if you look at all of his movies later on, you can see the origins. Obviously, he also worked in the Vita store, so you know he also knew a lot about films himself. But uh, you know, he was photographed in front of my store. It was in every press, you know, every newspaper, television. You know, then then Robert Rodriguez made El Mariachi. He came to my store. He picked his favorite twenty movies, and we all had them on VHS at the time. And oh, he loved rad. the store too. I remember and. Yeah, we had celebrities, a rock musician, uh I remember the guys from Guar coming in and <laughs> Michael Jackson Michael Jackson comes with his limousine and rents all the Hong Kong films, never returns them and, <laughs>
2: oh, and no. the
1: record record company a big uh a big bill uh to pay for that. Yeah,
3: like for leave, those, it, uh, leave it to tapes the guy. I, I found. <laughs> I was just gonna say leave it leave it to the guy that bought the entire Beatles catalog to not return his video rentals. <laughs>
1: Exactly, and I won't tell you what other movies he rented, mm. but only legal <laughs> in Holland, I guess. Oh, no. Well, well, they were art house films shot in houses in Turkey at the time. Mm. Uh, <laughs> but uh, I guess he saw something else in it.
3: Great. Now, now, this episode going to get subpoenaed at some point,
1: <laughs> right? Well, I didn't do anything. You <laughs> <laughs> didn't do anything. You guys didn't do anything. But I'm just telling you. I mean, this is what happened. I mean, it's on record. What happened? It, what do you mean?
3: Oh, no, I was saying, you're just saying what happened. Just, it's, it is what it is.
1: Yeah, yeah. I, I mean, these films were, you know, Arthouse films released right. by Cina Mina at the time, which is an Arthouse label. But, you know, they, they had nudity in it. And, uh, you know, <laughs> it was a different time. But still, these films are regarded art Arthouse films and highly sure. regarded. But he just saw something else in it.
0: Right. So, what about.
3: Uh, sorry, Joe. I was just going to ask a question real quick. Go ahead. I was just going to say, like, um, and maybe this will derail you, Joe. Uh, This is the challenge of doing Skype things. But um, look at this. Joe just left. You can't see him, Nico. He just walked away. He did? Yeah, he just walked away. Like, it's just, he just left. So, uh, no, but what I was going to say is, um, you know, uh, I remember when I went to a place called Scarecrow Video in Seattle for the first time in the 90s. And and it was, you know, a a sort of multi-level emporium of every kind of, uh, strange, unknown film to me that I'd ever you know imagined existing. You right. know? And I think you know for yeah. a lo- for a lot of people to sort of if you're if you're trying to help someone understand that there's an entire sort of undercurrent of a completely different world of a lot of different films um that are beyond you know what's on netflix or whatever right to the most pedestrian sort of film watcher or viewer what would you sort of say or like the the points of entry that that one must sort of you know take in is it i mean obviously you could say like any kind of criterion collection type of things or stuff like that but even i'm talking about a little bit more uh independent a little bit weirder a little bit out more out there but like maybe some points of entry
1: um, well, I'm not sure what you mean exactly. You mean it's kind of like, what called epics releases? or
3: Yeah, like, like, like if, if you're a person that's not really into underground film, but are interested in a lot of the things that are happening or have happened historically, you know, it's kind of like if somebody's all of a sudden interested in rock and roll, you're probably going to say, well, there's this band called Led Zeppelin. You should check them out. Uh, you, you know, like what are the sort of the, the, right. the, the starter points, you know, like that you might recommend to people to sort of be an entree, well, entree into that world?
1: Yeah, so so basically, I mean, I must say, I don't really release underground films. I maybe make underground films, and I released a couple of underground films, like Mondo Weirdo* like Carl Anderson. Uh, but basically, you know, I'm like into auteurs, like real filmmakers who, you know, who are in their own world, you know what I'm saying? Like, uh, I just, uh, one of my favorite films of the day was uh, like uh, Judy Oquesti's, death lay the neck and you know now they call it a jello it wasn't made as a jello but they cut it as a jello because jello was you know now and jello is now a term everybody knows kind of who mm-hmm. horror films and of, of course Mario gento is more known ever now because of suspiria but before he was also kind of underground you know and um and so people like that started you know that whole Jallo scene like because of the crystal plummets and Producers see that. They cut uh, that later the neck as a giallo. And uh, I'm actually very happy to announce today that I just signed a deal with Nucleus Films in the UK, who did new 2K transfers of the director's cut and the, the English and Italian language giallo cut. Um, uh, they did it a couple of years ago. They never want me to have the master's. But uh, we signed a deal like a month ago and uh, I'm very happy to announce they're finally coming out in its full glory. I mean, the masters, the producers uh, gave me at a time were, you know, were good good for Blu-ray, but not good enough. They were standard definition. Mm-hmm. Uh, it does look better on Blu-ray than on DVD. Mm-hmm uh but that's all i got and but now i got all this this you know this great this great new transfers and i'm very excited we had a you know uh what's his name natalia thompson and uh from Mondo Digital and roy howard who writes all the Jalap books in the us uh do the audio commentaries cool and uh with the whole you know bunch of new extras I have the short film but Julia request made late, later and. You know, he was an auteur, and, and and if you ever read the book on cult Epic's Releases, it's basically, it's divided in, in chapters by directors, you know what I'm saying? Mm-hmm. Not, you know, not by genre necessarily, a little bit, but, um, so basically I've become friends with these directors, like Fernando Arabal, he was, an, an, uh, you know, if you didn't hear about him before, then you probably never heard about him. Um, but he was like the body of uh, Alexander Yodorovsky, who everybody knows And you know, Alexander Yodorovsky made all this you know, this kind of psychedelic looking but esoteric uh, uh films in the in the seventies. Sure. And uh Arabao was making these also and they're surrealistic films and Arabao was also making these surrealistic films were more like political, like uh and very extreme, but kind of like more like Bunuel. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, once you see a film of him, like, I'm wet, or, I will walk like a crazy horse. You go like, Whoa, where have I been? Why have I never seen this? And, and that's what I'm after. I'm trying to find these masterpieces of cinema, uh-huh. um, which nobody ever seen before. And, uh, you know, it takes forever to get the materials out of the vaults and get the transfers done. And, you know, it's, it's a, it's a, some films took me like 10 years, 15 years to get the rights. I mean, I just recently got Moonchild, which is a second film by Augusto Ferranggo. And Moonchild is the film he did with Lisa Gerrard of Dead Can Dance. Dead Can Dance just had a world tour announced. In oh, interesting! And it was cancelled. And uh, and uh, and they did also the score for the film. This film was never released on DVD or, or VHS or VHS maybe yeah, VHS I think but not in the U.S. And he's the director of In the Glass Cage, which is still placed in arthouses, to this day, controversial film as well. And 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 so that took me 15 years to, to cl- find the right holder because it switches all the time, and to find the materials at the same time to do a Blu-ray.
2: Mm-hmm. Yeah.
1: And it was a big hit because people discovered the film. It's such a beautiful, gorgeous film. And, and also now again, there is third film, 99.9, again, a premiere for you. Which if there are fans watching or uh, listening uh, who like horror films, uh, 99.9 is the film, uh, you know, he his, his first real kind of mystery horror uh, ghost story was the beginning of the Spanish horror films uh, in the 80s. I mean, the Spanish horror cinema in the 60s and 70s was there, you know, with all these Tom's, living Tom's films and stuff. And then uh, Toms of the Living Dead and stuff like that. But mm-hmm. in the in the nineties he was the first one uh in, in the realm of people, like uh, later on obviously, uh, <laughs> was the director of uh all well, the big Spanish film, Gilemo do Toro. So Gilemo do Toro, you know, he was the he started that whole whole thing with some other filmmakers, including Gilemo de Toro. And they worked with the same people, the guy who did the score for Ninebound Nine also won an Oscar for uh, Pan's Labyrinth. In oh, wow. And the cinematographer is the same cinematographer Gilemo Maltore uses a couple of years later. But this guy, you know, was in Spain and, and set up this whole trend of, of art house horror films, kind of. I don't know if you've ever seen his films, but um, yeah, they're fascinating. You know, so I work with directors kind of on the long run and then slowly start releasing their oeuvre in time. Right. And that can take time.
0: Yeah, that's very interesting, and so so it's so not so much like uh, like you said the distinction between underground filmmakers who are making like low budget movies, you know, on the run kind of thing no. that that maybe no, these, don't ever get theatrically distributed, but like what you're actually putting out are are you know well known uh, you know directors who who are making movies that may not, have been, uh, may not have been seen or may not have been heard of by the vast, you know, uh, mainstream audience. But they're movies that, for instance, the, uh, the Moonchild movie you were just talking about um, actually showed at Cannes and, and is obviously like a, a high production exactly. value art film.
1: Exactly. Yeah, all the films are pretty big films. I'm now working um, with the agent of uh, Just Check and Justin you know, he was a known director. I mean, he did Emmanuel and his de O and Glenn Flynn. Oh, sure. and, and he made two other films I'm talking to. I'm actually finalizing the contract right now, actually, as we speak. we did the transfer of uh, Madame Clouds, which was released in the U.S. as the French woman. And this film, they did a new transfer uh, in 4K with the cinematographer who was pretty well known. I mean, he shot Ronin with Rob De Niro, beautiful film, The Lover, oh, yeah. you know, a uh, beautiful film too, and he shot this film, Madame Claire, The French Woman, and French Woman was released in the 70s uh, and, and gained nine million dollars in the box office. The thing is, the young, younger people do not know about these films unless you promote it one way or the other, and the older people will find it, but they're not necessarily Blu-ray fanatics, you know, collectors, Right. They're, they're too old, they probably just want the DVD. They may not even have a Blu-ray player, I'm not sure. Right. Uh, but there are but these are very important films and I'm trying to bring these films back which are kind of forgotten and lost. And uh, that's another one and we're actually going to interview just Check In next month in France. I don't know how I did that, but I don't have <laughs> to go there, but we're doing it. <laughs> and at the same time working on a book on Sylvie Christal's Lost Films, you know, this, the films she did in the seventies beside Emmanuel in Europe with people like Borovsik and, and Alain Robbe-Grillet and Claude Chabrol. And and people didn't even know she did all these films, you know, because they're not available. They're not released. And uh, But soon it will change, and uh, I'm very happy to be part of that.
0: That's going to be another book project that you're going to do with her?
1: Yeah, we're doing uh, another book. Uh, the next book is actually Christian that. Early photography by Edward Culver on Only Fear of Pain period, 1981-82. Mm-hmm. That's a coffee table photography book with the with the original albums reissued for the 40th anniversary. And then I'm uh, working out with a writer called Jeremy Ritchie on uh, a book. And it's written, you know, it's like a, like a story about each chapter is on these films. And uh, it's a fantastic writer. I, I always loved his articles in Moon in the Cutter. And he is writing it, and uh, it's going to be a coffee table fully illustrated on the films, yeah for next year.
0: yeah, that sounds really good what's how do you how do you decide you know um again, I mean, this kind of goes back to what we were talking about earlier when you're like you know coming across a certain subject that you want to explore, and then you've got to decide like how exactly to do that. what makes you you know decide that you know the Silva Pop project is is a good idea for a book versus a good idea for a documentary about her uh, her career that nobody remembers or something like that. Like, how do you decide what what makes a good book project? That's kind of what I'm getting at.
1: Uh, okay, well, well, I don't decide it. It's it's decided the others, and, uh-huh. something, and then something happens, and then I say <laughs> yes. I say yes or no. But uh, yeah. <laughs> no, basically, this guy was telling me about it, that he was writing it. He's been writing it for eight years, and I said, uh, "Thumbs up." And I said, uh, "I want to release some films of Silvio Cristiano nobody ever seen before."
2: Oh.
1: And uh, and and anyway, then this year he finally he contacted me again. He said, uh, "Are you are you interested in releasing it? Because I love the way your books look and design and." you know he loves it and i was like okay well uh, give me a uh, content and give me one chapter i look and i look at it and i'm fascinated by his writing and uh, and the whole idea is good and then i figured okay well i was already going to do some french films, so we can all do it all at once
0: oh right on so yeah so happened. it just sort of fit well together
1: it just happened on the right moments and you know We just try to figure out when to release it exactly, but um, it's in the works. I'm working on it every day.
0: It seems like, you know, I mean, uh, we, you know, we, we've been talking to you for about an hour now and we don't want to keep you a whole lot longer, oh, but okay. I think one of the, th- I know it doesn't even feel like it, right? That's how it's it just, it time flies when you're having fun, <laughs> but, uh, but I feel like one of the themes that keeps coming up is that these different projects you do and these different people you meet, it just seems like there's this sort of, uh, sort of like a good luck in, in, in a lot of the things that you do. It, it, do you feel that way? Do you feel that, that you sort of just find your way to the people and the opportunities that. That are are best for you.
1: Yeah, well, actually, I never know what it means when people say to you "good luck." That means <laughs> either they're sarcastic, <laughs> or or they mean it. I'm, I'm not sure, but I mean to it. me, it's not luck. <laughs> to me, to, to me, it's not luck. It's just meant to be. I'm uh-huh. just that one of these people. Who just have is meant to do certain things, and and I, you know, I just follow it. I get rewarded by it meaning that I can, you know, have a living from it. But I just do what my instinct says. Uh, mm-hmm. That's about it. So uh, I never really released, I mean, I got movies offered and, and I could have said yes, but I was like, yeah, nah, nah, does not really go with me. I least the film has to be artistic. Otherwise, I feel sorry later. I mean, I got movies offered like, uh, you know, Men Behind the Sun. Although I must say it's a very well-made film. Or, like the, what's the other movie called? The Serbian film. Serbian mm-hmm. movie, what's called? The S- Serbian movie, you know about this movie? I don't know. Okay, well, this is one of the, well, these are some of the most extreme films ever. Where the director sent the film to me from Serbia, and, you know, it's like, a, it's not real, but it's very extreme. Uh And some other company released it. They actually had to release it and cut first because they were afraid to release it. But, you know, (laughs) the film didn't even come in the country uh, the first time. It didn't arrive. Second time, he sent it on a different cover. I watched it, but my girlfriend at the time said, well... Nico, you're not going to release this, please. And I said, yeah, you may be right. There's nothing artistic about it one way or the other. Right. And that's me. I mean, I'm I'm an artist and I'm into artistic films. And even if they you know, are in the horror or erotic genre, I would call it. I, again, I don't release exploitation films like Severin or sure. different companies uh, do, because then it doesn't really go with me, who I am and what I do. You know, and, uh, and I hope people appreciate that. But, uh, you know, you will always be entertained if you watch a uh, cult epic film, I must say. Like, yeah. I, you know, I hear that many times of people going, whoa, i never seen it. What the hell happened? I'm so glad I saw this. And, you know, and I'm like, OK, well, thank you.
0: <laughs> well, I think, you know, I think uh, all the movies that I've seen that you've released, all I, the ones I've seen I love, and the ones I haven't seen look like the movies I would okay. want to see. I think that your um, new book is something that I hope people want to check out. It really is a beautiful, like I said, it's kind of like a psychedelic. Uh, masterpiece in a way just this this uh, this otherworldly setting of Mexico is beautiful w- Women of the Sun, Bunny Yeager in Mexico and then also the new uh, Blu-rays called The Claire Sinclair Show is that correct?
1: Yeah that's, that's Bunny's uh, last shoot it's uh, one of the episodes
0: and we can, um, we'll have all of the links, you know, to your website. And uh, I actually sent Brian while we were talking, I found a link to uh, the gallery um, that has the Bunny Yeager show up right now in Los Angeles, the uh, La Luz de Jesus Gallery, right? the Light of Jesus Gallery That's in right. Los Angeles. So um, uh, so I, I sent Brian a link for that video so people can will be able to click that link and look on YouTube and sort of tour the, the exhibition uh, at a distance if they can't get to Los Angeles make an appointment. Um, but we really appreciate you being with us, Nico. I, I, you and I have been uh, emailing each other for about a month now since I got that release about All your right. book. And I, right. I'm i very, very happy that we had actually had a chance to sort of talk and get to know you a bit more. And uh, and uh, as you come out with your next project or something, we'd love to have you back on. All right. I love it. Well, thanks for the opportunity.
3: Yeah, thanks Thanks so much, Nico. It's super exciting to get so much insight and and to be you know, I think that people should see all of your, uh, involvements and projects and, and creative work as, as doorways to, to worlds that they, they may, uh, (laughs) need to just open. So, uh, (laughs) uh, if you're uninitiated, uh, you know, I mean, and this, this book, you know, the, the, the digital version that I've seen, uh, it makes me really want to make sure that I have something in hand because it's just, it's beautiful. So uh, congratulations on all the, all the great work and it's been awesome to, to, to meet and talk to you.
1: All right, guys. Thanks a lot for having me
3: come on. All right. So what we're going to do is uh, we're going to say goodbye to our audience real quick and, and get off this live cast and then we'll do a little green room hang after. How about that? We'll say our goodbyes then. So hang on, hang on one second here. Uh, Thanks everybody for listening. We really appreciate it. Uh, if you're listening on anchor or Apple podcasts or Google podcasts or Spotify, and, um, also, if you're watching live, we're on right now, we're on YouTube, we're on Twitter, we're on Facebook, and you can always find us at artfightpodcast.com. And, um, uh, we appreciate everybody's, uh, support and interest and, and, uh, and making it all possible. So we're going to be out. Uh, Joe, uh, do you have anything you want to quickly announce for yourself or anything you, you want to plug?
0: You know, I don't think I don't think this week there's anything I want to say, so uh, I think we're good.
3: All right. right, uh, So again, thanks everybody. We're uh, I think yeah, we're good. We are out, and you guys hang on one minute. I'll be right back with you. But uh, for the rest of you, we're out.
0: Okay guys, I love the Art Fight Podcast and I listen to every episode even though I am a robot trying to sound like an actual person. I know it takes a lot to keep the podcast going. How can I help?
3: Go to anchor.fm forward slash Podcast. Click on the button, the big old button that says support this podcast. And once you get there, you'll have three options. You can just choose the lowest level. You're gonna pledge 99 cents a month to, to our production and and help us out again anchor.fm forward slash art fight podcast click on support this podcast all right thanks everyone